Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell, and I am sincerely glad you're with me. I'm really thrilled when people email me or, or DM me or whatever it is on Twitter and say that they've recommended the show to their friends. I do appreciate that. I mean, the goal of Money Talks is straightforward. I think we're in a period of historic change. People are going to be roadkill if they don't do the right kinds of things. That's why, by the way, going back a few years, I'm so pleased that we emphasize so heavily that you should lock in your interest rates right around the lows. We were talking about, you know, September of 2020. Well, that's one of our goals. And today we're going to deal with some more of that and that's how to protect yourself. Mark Leibovit is going to be with me, uh, vrtrader.com. But we're going to be talking about uranium. We're going to talk about gold. We're going to talk about the old commodity sector, including silver, too. Uh, lots of stuff to talk about, opportunities there. Uh, also, it's going to talk more with Ozzy about a new TD Bank report about our real estate market that'll grab your attention. Uh, Victor Dare, three central banks all got together this week. They all raised their interest rates. Uh, what does it mean to us? What does it mean to the markets? Michael Levy's going to be talking more about the inflation story in North America, inflation story reflected in the interest rate scenario. So there's no shortage of things to talk about. Plus, I've got a great goofy award for you. I mean, it's one of the silliest things I hear when it comes to sort of business slash finance from the political crowd. My goodness, it's ridiculous. We'll talk more about that. But first, today I'm going to start with the shocking stat, which serves as another reminder, as Ann Rand stated, you can ignore reality, but you can't ignore the consequences of reality. And the reality is Canada is going to face a rental and affordable housing crisis of historic proportions. And the social implications are profound. And I can hear some people saying, what do you think we have now? And they're right. I mean, I saw that tweet by uh, NDP leader in Alberta, Rachel Notley, saying, you know, talking to a woman who saw their rent go up $600. You know, in Toronto, I guess I was looking at it on Friday, tenants in several buildings have gone on a rental strike. I mean, there's no shortage of stories. So here's my point. It's about to get worse. And the social fallout is going to be absolutely profound throughout the country. Because the math is clear. You want to talk politics? Fine. I'm talking math. Two million newcomers from 2022 to 2025. Two million people in three years? I, I bet it'll be more, too, by the way. In a country where we already have a shortage of housing, which has pushed rents and house costs to unaffordable levels for millions of people, and it won't matter where your political allegiances lie. I mean, the math makes the crisis unavoidable. And it's been obvious for years. All three levels of government have contributed to the problem. Well, more than uh, contributed, they created it. That's a point I'd like you to take home. They created it. There are many contributing factors, of course, to the current housing problem. I mean, you've got taxation and fees, regulation, pushing the cost of housing up. De facto rent controls in some jurisdictions, well, it guarantees that the landlords can't recover their costs. For things like, well, you've got higher property taxes or inputs like utilities, insurance costs. Well, that's going to discourage building. Well, we need the supply. And a point that politicians and many others don't seem to understand, and this is important. You know, if you're choosing where to invest your money, the investment environment has changed. I mean, think about the risks and the headaches, uncertainty. They're not attractive for some investors to go into uh, development, especially when the alternative, though, is a guaranteed 5% return in fixed income. And you don't have much risk. So the incentive to increase supply by building more is diminished. Now, I know Ozzy and I regularly focus on how governments have persistently raised the cost of housing and rents. So today, 
I'm going to not focus on those. No, I'm going to go elsewhere. I'm going to be focusing on the shocking increase in immigration, student visas, and work permits that has taken place without serious plans by the government to house them. In fact, they've been the problem. Now, you tell me how that happens. I don't know. I mean, I've been warning since October 220 when the federal government made their announcement, hey, we've got a new target for immigration, 1.2 million over three years. Well, on Money Talks, we simply asked, where's the plan to house them? How's the newscomers? But there was none. And that guaranteed the problems we're already witnessing today. But my point, I still don't even see this understood by many people who follow this, is that it's going to get far worse. It's going to be a real crisis. Let me be perfectly clear, though. I'm not talking about the need for immigration. No. I mean, Canada's got a replacement birth rate of 1.4, well below the 2.1 needed to maintain the population. So we need immigration to foster economic growth, help maintain our workforce in the face of an aging population. I mean, to sustain our pensions because they're predicated on more people entering the workforce than retiring. No, we need immigration. What I'm talking about is the mind-blowing incompetence from government that there was no plan for housing. Even those those targets were well announced. I mean, what a shock. People have to live somewhere. The result is that rents have skyrocketed in major centers. We now hear an increasing number of stories of some immigrants being forced to live in homeless shelters because there's no housing available. Some have even left Canada because of the lack of housing. Well, the three levels of government are scrambling to address a problem that was clearly created by government. But here's the point. It was easily anticipated years ago. You know, in June, World Refugee Day, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau stated, everyone deserves a safe place to call home. Man, that may be the definition of absolutely empty rhetoric. Because for literally tens of thousands of newcomers, there are no homes, no chance of a home. I'm just going to give you these numbers, and I know I go on a bit about this kind of research, but I really want to get you, give you a sense of this. The Immigration, Refugee, and Citizen Canada announced this week that in 2022, Canada protests approximately 698,000 new work permits. That's over 500,000 more than in 2021. Plus, you got approximately 671,000 study permits you know, 167,000 more than 221, and you got a 52,000 more permanent residents in 2022. But somehow it's a shock to government that they have to live somewhere. And housing starts aren't even keeping close to what's needed. Yeah, I know some months are better. June was a pretty good month, but that came after April and May, saw multi-unit urban starts decline by 30%. But even at the rate of the best months, we're not close to what's needed. The CMHC estimates that Canada would need approximately 5.8 million new homes by 2030 just to help create more affordability in housing. Well, the point is even the best months don't even get halfway to that target, let alone the slower months. So my point, get ready. More severe problems of affordable rents and housing are inevitable in such a dramatic fashion. And when you want to look at what happened, well, it's government. I have no confidence that they can solve this problem that they clearly created. You want to know where the markets are going, gold, silver, uranium. I'm going to talk oil, all of that with 
a multi-winner of Timer's Digest Awards. It doesn't matter. He's not won it for long-term timing. He's done it for gold, uh, other things. Mark Leibovitz joins me from vrtrader.com, vrtrader.com. Numerous uh, newsletters, including looking at the cannabis sector, uh, you know, really short-term trade, long-term perspective, all of that kind of stuff. So, Mark, first of all, appreciate you being with us. Thank you, Michael. You know, I consider myself a survivor. (laughs) And there is something to be said by, well, that is a reflection that you got more right than wrong. That's for sure. And you have been, including this year when I'm looking back at the World Outlook Conference. You know, you always put out an annual forecast issue with your modeling. And I'm getting kind of nervous because at that time you said, I like the first half of the year. I like it into the end of July. And so, well, here we are. We've had the kind of move that I don't think has surprised you, uh, you know, with your systems. But doesn't that beg what's next? I mean, you know, if your model got it right in the first, you know, right through July, what, what's going to happen next? So uh, any update? Well, you on know, that? the weatherman story, Michael, you know, you have a forecast and you look out the window before you make your <laughs> trade, right? <laughs> so we had a key reversal in the indexes yesterday. And I don't know if that was a false one or not, meaning a higher high, lower low, heavy volume. So I guess if we break through, uh, maybe it'll be delayed. But, you know, it's end of the month window dressing. The model said be careful in this time frame. So I'm not chasing uh, stocks here. And uh, on a trading basis, we're actually short uh, the total markets index, VTI here, with a stop, of course. But uh, let's see how it plays out. But I would say weakness uh, or choppiness into uh, August, September makes sense to me. And there's going to be exceptions mm-hmm. You know, things are doing well today, like uh, Cameco, the uh, uranium stock, into new highs. You know what I mean? So there's always something to play. Well, that's music to my ears, by the way, on this show. You know, we've talked uranium. Uh, I'll come back to that, too. I promise people I'll come back to that. Just a a couple of other things that uh, you've mentioned here. I want to make sure that people know you make short-term forecasts. That's what you were just talking about, you know, that we could get into the choppiness. You make longer-term forecasts or, or, you know, just looking at the markets and what you see longer-term. So I want to make sure people are listening and and making that distinction themselves, you know. So on a shorter term, you wouldn't be surprised to see some, uh, you know, a little bit nastier market here. very tough, though. I mean, I just think the reason that technical analysis shows some strength is you're not buffeted every moment by the latest piece of news. You know, like another news headline, technical say the market's already absorbed those news headlines. So what is it telling us? You know, at the beginning of the year, you know, we had that January barometer, you know, it goes way back from decades back where, you know, with the first five days of the year, is it up Ooh. compared to the December close? And is the end of January up uh, compared to the December close? And that said, net, net, by the end of the year, the market should be up. So, of course, it's been, you know, violent, you know, but sharp sell off into the first quarter, then up now, pullback phase. So, you know, by when the, all the dust settles, I think the barometer will ultimately be right that even if we get a correction in August, September, we may still be higher uh, into the end of the year, Mike. Of course, you got to be in the indexes if you're playing that because that's based on the S&P, you know, not on individual stocks. Yeah, and so let, let's come to individual groups within that. I mean, you know, there's, there's all sorts of groups people are fascinated with. And maybe I'll start, though, with... I know it's difficult because we've had the tech sector dominated by large tech, you know, whether it is seven companies, nine companies, whatever. Uh, So maybe it's misleading to look at that whole sector as opposed to just that group. But I think that's where the surprise has been, has been uh, the strength there. 
uh, driven by those seven to nine stocks. It's been amazing. But does your work show you anything there? I mean, I'm, you know, I just worry, you know, I'm the wall of worry guy, the original wall of worry. So I look at it and go, it's tripled. I better be careful here, you know, but does, or do, the, do the charts sort of suggest that when you look at any of those big ones? Well, you know, you, you have not established a downtrend in them. You know, you're still in an up channel. Uh, they're way overbought. You know, you had a little reversal pattern, I think, at Microsoft the uh, day before yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're still, you know, in a channel and uptrend. So I guess we'll have a correction and they'll still be leaders into the end of the year following a pullback unless something uh, dramatically changes. I'm not buying them at these levels. Yeah. You know, there's other stocks yeah. to buy. There's other opportunities. Some many, you know, the depressed stocks that are catching up. For example, the Russell 2000 index, which is still behind the other big indexes. You know, I'd rather be in something like that if I was real bullish because I think there's a lot of catch-up opportunity in that index. But as far as those seven stocks, I'm sure there's trades in each of them, you know, but I'm not buying Apple Computer at uh, $196 a share when it's up $100 a year. You know what I mean? So that's just my technical approach to it but just as a comment they're probably still going to be leaders because everybody thinks they are and everybody as you know is is dizzy about the ai story Mm -hmm. you know nvidia and uh, ai the two stocks that seem to be generating all this speculative trading and interest and any company that doesn't come out and say we're going to use ai they get slammed so it's, it's it's a little crazy mike you know really i don't you know i look at the charts i trade them but i'm not going to fall in love with uh concept AI just because everybody says you have to, you know, but well, uh, you're talking about a group that's been in favor. I want to ask you about a couple of groups, especially one group that's not been in favor of the broad specter of commodities have not been in favor in the same way. And oil's not been in favor. And you look at those stocks. So what are your charts telling us about what's happening in that, you know, that side of the energy field, the oil sector? Well, I'm I'm long all the commodity uh, plays, you know, corn and soybeans and wheat, which had a run here. You know, there's food shortages going on around the world right now. And a lot of it has to do with El Nino and whether it's uh, geopolitical issues but the charts are all bullish. Uh, uh, oil is uh, overall positive in my work. In fact, it broke out above a key moving average uh, three, four days ago, and we had a little bit of a run. You know, it certainly could settle back here a little bit. You know, crude oil went from the low 60s to 80, so a pullback to 70 wouldn't uh, be out of the question, you know, before we go higher. I'm I'm in the camp that says crude oil is going to be $200 a barrel in the next five years. Mm-hmm. So you're talking to the wrong guy. If you're looking for lower prices, there's going to be shortages there. And there's tremendous world demand for it. Uh, all you have to do is buy Occidental Petroleum, you know, with uh, yeah. Warren Buffett owning 25% of the stock. Uh, this man is, is rarely wrong. And that, that's one of my big holdings is Oxy, which is my crude oil play, both technically and because of Warren. But, uh, yeah, crude oil, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's uh, $100 a barrel into the first quarter of next year. You know, one of the things that concerns me, I mean, we've been bullish on oil as investors. We're not trading it, if you know what I mean. I'm not approaching it in that way. I'm approaching saying, you know, it's a great hedge against inflation if you're worried about, or I'd rather put that as saying instead, a depreciating currency uh, purchasing power. I'd rather have oil 
uh, than U.S. dollars oil, than Canadian dollars, oils and euros. So I've got that sort of that long-term view. You know what worries me is it's getting to be crowded. At least maybe it's just the people I listen to or like to read, enjoy. Uh, you know, it seems pretty bullish there. And I thought, wait a second, are all those people going to be right? Am I going to be right on that thing? So how do you factor that kind of stuff in as the, as the trade becomes a little more crowded? Of course, that's what pushes prices up. Well, you know, I'm, losing, I'm using the charts. You know, I use uh, moving averages, my volume reversal indicator, uh, you know, all this uh, hocus pocus that goes out on my screen. You see a resistance level hit. Mm-hmm. And then uh, if you're trading, you know, you, you act accordingly. I think that's more or less what's happening here a little bit with the oil stock that you had a little bit of a run the last few days. But it's not a bearish thing. It's just that they hit a little bit of a wall, a little pullback, and they could just blast right through it uh, next week. So I'm keeping my positions in the oil Stocks, uh, I like Pioneer Oil and Gas, PXD. You know, it pays like a, almost a 15, 20% uh, depends on the price dividend and Oxy and uh, a lot of low price names. But, you know, we do trade them occasionally, but uh, you're asking more of a near term mm-hmm. position, and I would hold yeah. that I think they're going. Higher. Uh, it's interesting uh, with the yields that some of those stocks, I'm always surprised if I haven't looked at something for a while and I'll come back and I'll check out. And the oil and gas, you know, I already knew, of course, that the cash flows are excellent. You know, they've come out of a period where they handled their costs. They're not spending as much on exploration. So, you know, a lot of it's getting fed back to shareholders, whether it's a share buyback or, you know, the dividend. But I'm just I'm just telling people I've been blown away by the size of the dividends. I mean, very attractive for investors. Yeah, a little company like Energy Transfer uh, Pipeline, I think it's uh, about a 10% uh, dividend, and the stock looks cheap to me, and uh, I think there's demand in the industry. You know, names like Transocean Offshore, Rig, Halliburton, Schlumberger, even the ancillary names have, have come back. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bull. I'm not saying, you know, crude oil can't settle back here, you know, a few dollars after the run it just had, but the charts look bullish to me so i'm hanging in there okay let me let me shift gears a little bit here and go into something you've been a vr trader when they were there they made you gold timer of the year you know uh in that sector you you've got a precious metals you know one of your letters focuses on that so uh again we've had a nice slow run-up in gold but certainly not the explosion the sort of uh gold bugs we're hoping for at this moment you know i I just can you start maybe with the long-term look on that well, my model, which, you know, I also have a model for the yeah. gold. It basically just shows, you know, a zigzag higher pattern through the uh, year with a high around November. So uh, I'm sticking with the gold plays. I'm actually in some of the double leverage names like Nugget and UGT, which is double long the uh, mm-hmm. shares. So, uh, I, you know, I think we're trending up. The only caveat I could see looking at the charts is if gold based in U.S. dollars breaks under $1,900, then maybe we're going to have a little bit more of a correction. I'm hoping that doesn't happen, but that's sort of a, I guess, a mental stop if you're trading a little bit, if it gets under that level. But um, my bet is uh, we're going to break through, and uh, we've knocked at the door in that 2080, 2070 area two or three times already. And if we take that out, it's going to be 2300, 2500 really fast, my opinion. And I think that could happen any time between now and the first quarter of uh, next year. So to me, they're 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 bargains. I'm I'm holding them. There's some really silver in, in particular too, Michael. A lot of cheap silver stocks. There's a lot of industrial demand for silver, and uh, it's a big catch-up percentage play. So silver over thirty dollars is not unreasonable in the next, uh, I would say, six or eight months. So um, yeah, I'm 
I'm in a few of those, quite a few of those names, unfortunately, but I am in them. And I, so far, we're ahead a little bit, so we're happy. You know, it's fascinating to see, as I say, how out of favor some groups become so quickly, you know. And, you know, of course, Money Talks very clearly was very long, still long-term bullish on all the commodities, was starting in February of 220, very, you know, very clearly, aggressively with the World Outlook Conference, talking about the coming bull market and commodities. Uh, and, and again, I guess I'm more mentioning that because, you know, if you have a longer term bullish view, then you'd take these declines as opportunities. I mean, to me, that's great news if I'm a buyer, you know, that I, I want them to go down before I buy. I mean, not, I'm not a momentum trader for sure. You know, I'm talking as an investor uh, again. But, yeah, I, I, I haven't been, uh, you know, I, I haven't cared that they've been soft because I've got a longer term view. And I think at some point. Uh, in fact, I, I've got my own timing on that, but yeah, I think we'll be well rewarded. We'll, okay. be, we'll be well rewarded. Is all I'm saying, you know, on that. We're, we also don't want to forget about the crypto world. I don't mean to interject no. that because uh, uh, Bitcoin uh, had a big bounce here. It got down to fifteen thousand a coin a few months back. Everybody thought it was going to go to zero. Uh, I'm looking for eighty thousand plus in the next. Uh, I could be, you know, two years. I don't know how long it's going to take to get there, but. The uh, Ripple case with the SEC here in the U.S. and the XRP, uh, the fact that it's you know now tradable, not illegal. The XRP is something uh, people should look at too. Uh, my gut feeling, it's, I know it sounds really speculative on this interview, but you're looking at something that's trading at 70 cents for the coin. This could be $500 or a $1,000 coin in five years. I mean, look what Bitcoin did. It went from $200 to 60000 So, uh, there's a play here, and I would uh, encourage investors to look both at Bitcoin, XRP as a small part of their speculative uh, portfolio. I think there's a lot coming for both of them. And uh, the securities industry now is going to start offering these things and t talking them up. Um, uh, the uh, BlackRock, Larry Fink, I don't know if you yeah. know what's going on there. He's trying to get the ETF going for Bitcoin. So what happened when GLD, the gold ETF, started? That was fuel for the fire, and it helped gold go higher. So once that BlackRock project gets going, that's going to be fuel for Bitcoin. Just something to watch. Well, on the fundamental basis, I thought that was significant because Larry Fink had been such a detractor of Bitcoin going back a couple of years, you know. And all of a sudden, I read BlackRock's going to come out with a Bitcoin ETF. I'm going, wow. But, but you're seeing it in other parts of the industry, too. I mean, the acceptance right. has clearly grown. Uh, there and I want to add this as though Mark, you've been on top of that story. Uh, I'm just trying to think for three years or four years. You know, you've got your own letter that you followed it, but you've made some good money in that sphere. And I just want to acknowledge that that you're not Johnny come lately to this whatsoever. No, and you know, and what's so good about it is it's we got tremendous volatility, which as a trader. Uh, is great. I mean, you know, to watch a Bitcoin, you know, go, go from 60,000 to 15,000 and back to 32,000. And you can see it in the charts. I mean, we GBTC, which is the uh, it's not an ETF, it's a trust, but it trades, as you know, on the uh, on the NASDAQ. I mean, the stock was $50 a share, got down to eight and we recommended it. And now it's around 20. You know, it, you can follow the, the chart patterns. They get oversold, they get overbought like anything else. So, yes, I'm in love with the, the concept of the crypto, but you got to trade them. You know, they're very volatile. Yeah, you know, you, if you buy something at eight and it goes to 50, why not take some off the table, right? <laughs> uh, give me the symbol one more time, though, for people. Uh, that, that's GBTC. Yeah. 
GBTC. That's the current way of playing Bitcoin. I think it's around $19 a share. It was as low as eight. It was as high as 50. So, you know, if uh, BlackRock gets this thing going and Bitcoin moves into the 40s or $50,000 range, this little $20 stock could double. And, and, and you I'll know, say, so you, you cover it, uh, you know, in all of your letters with uh, vrtrader.com. Well, the blockchain yeah, letter. Exactly. The blockchain letter. In so it's not that you're right. just throwing that out there. If people are interested in that sector, that's a, that's one of the ones that you do to subscribe to because, they're going. you know, you'll give an update. You'll tell us when you think it's time to exit, you t- think it's time to enter you know, uh, with someone right. who's spending their time looking at it in that way. And there, I mean, there's not a lot of people, certainly there was no one basically doing it that way when you first started that letter, you know, but as I say, it's still a very empty space. I can get lots of people to talk to me about various aspects. That's one that I think people need a little help when they start talking about actually trading it and getting involved with it. But uh, I just want to let people know. Right. Even, even my wife didn't want me to do it. She said, don't, 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 don't go out there and create a crypto letter. You, you're going to create problems. It's too controversial or whatever. And it turned out that was the bottom. You know what I mean? So, oh, she, <laughs> she's, she's a leading indicator. <laughs> right. So I, I told her she, she spooked me at the very bottom with the crypto that she didn't want me to launch the crypto. In fact, we originally called the crypto letter and then we changed it to the yeah. blockchain letter because of the fear that we would somehow attract regulators or something to us. And we were doing something criminal, which is not the case at all. You know, so it's it's funny. You know, it's, uh, you know, extremes in the market. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let, let's finish with this. OK, so we're, I mean, you can't give advice and we don't give advice on this show specifically because we don't know anybody's personal circumstances. We just sort of share what uh, our analysts are looking at and you know, try and do the time frame, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so within that, you know, what I'm hearing from you is uh, you are not bearish long term. You know, there's nothing that says, so oh, you're worried about a crash. You don't have that information at this point, but you wouldn't be surprised at some weakness. But again, in some of these sectors, that may provide an opportunity uh, for someone who's accumulating at that point. If I had my ideal scenario, I would see the uh, equity markets pull back into the fall or even as late as November and gold take off into new highs uh, into that same time frame, you know, and probably uranium would do well, you know, commodities would continue to do well. We're all watching the U.S. dollar as the key here. But, you know, we saw a run up in the commodities uh, like the agriculturals, even with uh, the U.S. dollar not cooperating. Why? Because there were shortages of food, you know, and the wheat shortage with Ukraine and all this stuff going on. So, uh, we're, we're holding those because I think the, the charts say there's more coming to the upside there, regardless of the U.S. dollar. You know, I know everybody ties that, but I, I, I always look the markets individually, yeah. Mike. I don't I don't always tie an inverse relationship because sometimes they, they move to in, in parallel. They don't always diverge, you know, so it's something you got to be careful of. But overall, yeah, markets, uh, I'm not chasing them here. There are always some individual stocks, but I think uh, – you know, if you're a little patient with the stock market for a few weeks, I think you'll have a better entry. And then the January barometer would be vindicated into a year-end rally, and we'll take it from there, I guess. Uh, let, I, I wanted to do more in uranium, and I, I let it slip because I got onto something else. So, again, what are you seeing in the chart patterns of the uranium price? You mentioned that Com- uh, Cameco, you know, uh, made a, a recent high here. I mean, that's obviously positive. So uh, again, I, I don't want to leave without giving a, a summation to you what you're seeing on the chart. Yeah, I mean, the, char- the charts are positive. I mean, you follow, there's several names out there. There's the ETF, URA, there are other, one, other ones that you can track. But, you know, the safe play is a big name like CCJ, which is the 
Cameco if you want to be in that. Now, you got to remember, you're chasing it here a little bit. I mean, it was 10 or 15 points lower a few months ago, but it did break out. And, uh, you know, there's, there's no way the world's not moving more toward, you know, nuclear energy and uranium, whether it happens, you know, right away here, but other countries are doing it. And uh, as you just said, Japan is uh, changing its mind about it as well. So, uh, you know, it's uh, necessary evil for those who are afraid of it. But uh, how are they going to how are they going to power all these electric vehicles, right? You know, we don't have the power grid to do it, and uranium is really the only long-term answer. I personally, myself, I don't want to rely on the EV concept because I uh, don't want to run out of gas on long road trips, so I have a hybrid so I can mm-hmm. <laughs> plug in and I could uh, take advantage of uh, the, you know normal gasoline, but it's going to take time until we get the conversion you know underway there. But yeah, we've got an awful lot of it's, it's an lo- awful lot of experts agreeing with you on that in that uh, they are saying no hybrids a better way to go. We don't have the electrical grid to go further at this point. I mean, there's just way too many questions left unanswered. And way too much money involved, but I'll leave that for another story. I'm just letting you know you got company in that thought, uh, you know, with your hybrid. Um, yeah, well, I just recently bought one of these Jeep Grand Cherokee XEs that has a plug-in and a uh, gasoline component. And I said to myself, you know, I do too much driving. I don't want to, you know, run out of hybrid power, you know, on my road uh, here in Phoenix driving up to Flagstaff or doing any traveling out to California. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still in the old old folks camp that I still want gasoline. And, you know, it's, it, it's a reality out there. It's just mm-hmm. something we have to, it's, it's going to take a long time for that transition and uh, we'll just have to deal with it. But as far as the markets, you know, they've been very volatile, you know, and uh, another thing we didn't mention, you know, we've got a presidential election next year and a lot of political forces at work here. You know, you can't exclude that as being a variable. So, you know, market could continue up uh, for political reasons and, you know, we don't talk about it too often. I mentioned in my newsletter, you probably read it, you know, back in 1988, Ronald Reagan created that plunge protection team. Yes. And media doesn't cover it at all. I don't hear a word about it. But it's called the Working Group of Financial Markets. And the government could be in there helping support the market. Look at uh, uh, Japan. Japan owns 70 percent of the government of the ETFs and the stocks in Japan. So government intervention may have part and parcel to this whole Scenario. So as soon as the bank crisis hit, the government jumped in and, uh, you know, both um, supporting the banks that were failing and perhaps even helping along the stock market a little bit. So these are just realities. And uh, you see it in the charts as well. And uh, hopefully we can make sense of it for our, our subscribers. Well, and for our listeners too, Mark, which I much appreciate. And uh, I'll put you on the spot. We got to visit again in the near future. You know, I'll talk to you early fall. We'll see how we're doing on those things. But there's so much to talk about, as you say. And uh, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm keep saying, just give me one more minute, one more minute. In an election year, 2024, is a tendency for the stock market to be strong or weak? Um, I think it's going to, at the moment, you know, I would say, uh, you know, with the Democrats in charge and the market in an uptrend, uh, at least for part of the year, you know, I would say at least for part of the year. You know, there's a presidential cycle um, and it's every four years and the cycle low is due sometime between this fall, which we talked mm-hmm. about as a possible low point and one even as late as March of 2024. So there's a possibility that either one or both, you could see a low point and then up again. So we sell off into the fourth quarter, rally to year end, then maybe pull back into the first quarter of 2024 and then rally up toward the election might be a hypothetical scenario right now. So uh, we'll have to put together a model for 2024 to finalize that. But that's a possibility here. So let's 
let's uh, I'm constructive as long as uh, the numbers say we're up. The model says up until year end, except for pullback here. And uh, let's just, you know, you know, some outlier event hits like a COVID or invasions or some crazy story. You know, obviously the charts are going to change fast and we'll react accordingly. But that's where we're seeing it right now, staying long um, uranium and gold and uh, some of the cryptos and uh, trading them along the way. And I'll invite people to go to vrtrader.com. You can see all the uh, newsletters and the focus, as they say, including the blockchain letter, precious metal letter. So he's there with everything at vrtrader.com. Mark, thanks for finding time. Anytime, Mike. I love seeing seeing you and talking to you. And hopefully I can see you this year in the World Outlook Conference in person. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you. Andrew Ruland here from Integrated Wealth Management. In our recent webinar called Where Do We Go From Here, we covered a lot of ground, including the importance of the May 7th Armstrong Economic Confidence Model date, future growth opportunities and equities, the effects of proposed changes to capital gains taxation, the path of inflation and interest rates, and the outlook for precious metals and oil stocks. Fortunately, things have been unfolding according to our outlook. But it's not about being right. It's about getting it right for clients. Our portfolio teams are practical and prudent. We turn independent research and leading-edge forecasting models into lower-stress portfolios that help preserve and grow the purchasing power of your nest egg, come what may. You can watch our recent webinar, learn more about how we work with clients, and request a complimentary consultation by visiting integratedwealthmanagement.ca. That's integratedwealthmanagement.ca. I'm going to bring Mike Levy in right now. I mean, obviously, it's interesting. I was, asked, I was asked this the other day, Mike, about why we focus on interest rates. And I said, how about a number, $2.9 trillion in consumer debt? We know about record government debt. Interest rates have such a profound impact, especially now, I want to be clear, if you're someone with money and you've been getting about 1% you know, for about three years, now you get 5%, you think it's significant. But it's also, of course, on the borrowing side where people are now, you know, maybe they're mortgage is coming due or they're just worried it's going to come due in the next year or two and the payments are going to be unaffordable or you're on a variable rate mortgage so the rates are changing uh you know a prime plus one loan all of those things it seems still the dominant thing is uh what are interest rates doing which of course is looking back at what's inflation doing but again so this week we got the federal reserve bumping them up again five and a quarter to five and a half percent mike and the fed says they can afford this is Jerome Powell, and this is maybe a little bit different than what we've heard. Uh, can afford to be a little patient, but as well as resolute, Mr. Powell said, uh, though his overall message tilted towards being resolute, we need to get this done. And he's referring to the anti-inflation campaign. And the record is clear that if we take too long or if we don't succeed, then the pain will only be greater. And that just refers right back to what you're saying, Mike, is, yeah, they could hold off or, yeah, they could do this or that. But I think back of their mind, as you and I have been discussing, is that if they don't do enough now, it could almost mortally wound us. Yeah, it's interesting. We also had the European, (laughs) excuse me, Central Bank, raise rates this week on Thursday. You know, that's the thing, the 2% mantra back to 2% inflation, et cetera. Uh, I think what's interesting, though, is that consistency is, you know, there are a lot of criticisms. We echoed it last week about the Bank of Canada raising and not holding back for a bit. 
But they came out this week. We got the minutes of the meeting, the July 12th meeting to raise rates. We got those minutes. So at least we saw what they were thinking. And come back to what you've just said, Mike, is it seemed that they thought the risk of not raising rates was greater than the risk of uh, uh, or the risk of not raising rates uh, was better than the risk entailed if you do raise rates. Uh, I hope that wasn't too confusing, but they said, hey, we're going to go on this one because we're more worried about if we don't go enough, we got even a bigger problem. Absolutely. And it goes back to uh, what we were talking about the last two weeks, Mike, is the fact that they raise rates now, but there's a big lag in the transmission of monetary policies from increases in the Bank of Canada policy interest rate to impacts on demand and inflation, and that's longer than usual. So they raise rates today. You can't expect a change today, but they're worried that if they don't do it now because of the lag between raising rates and the impact of those raising rates that we're going to be behind the eight ball and uh, maybe taking uh, longer to work. However, worked in, you know, worked in housing and in interest rate sensitive goods, they slowed down the housing market because mortgage rates went up and interest rate sensitive goods that are being bought or uh, purchased or traded or wholesale, retail, whatever it is, anything that was prone to be affected by interest rates, that also may be taking longer to work. So they've really got their work cut out for them. Yeah, what's interesting is that what you're saying is the very reason some economists are critical of them raising rates. They said you haven't given it a chance to work through the economy. So it's kind of interesting on both sides. It's the same phenomena arguing both sides of the coin. Hey, let me give you, though, a number here, because obviously people were pointing to the Canadian headline inflation at 2.8%. Well, here's one of the numbers that came out of the minutes from the Bank of Canada's uh, deliberations, and that is the price of 50% of the components of the CPI had still risen above 5% in June. Not 2.8, but above 5. Half of the stuff they're looking at is still there. I would think that had to have a big influence on them saying, no, things have not slowed down sufficiently, uh, you know, to reduce demand when you got a 5% increase in half of the stuff in the CPI. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there's a further argument to exactly what you're saying. You know, inflation has come down, Mike, and uh, you've just stated that it's come down in the U.S. and Canada. And it's also forecast by the Bank of Canada to remain around the 3% level this next year. But, and this is the big but, they do not want that number as the new normal, because if it is, then they have not achieved what they set out to do and that's only going to come back it might give us a little short-term relief but it's only going to come back and bite us and that's the big thing they don't want and again i'm going to quote you it's it's very easy easy now to stop or even lower rates but boy if they go up they have no tools except to keep raising interest rates so they can't really do it now but mike The question is, and I put it back to you, can they stop now, both Fed and uh, the U.S. Fed and the Bank of Canada, can they stop now and just let it, wait and see what the effect's going to be? Give us a few months reprieve and maybe then things will catch up. 
And that's why we're going to get such focus on September. You know, right now, the last time I looked, um, you know, the markets are giving only about an 18% chance of rate increase in September for the U.S., but 38% chance of a rate increase by November. So, yeah, clearly the market's starting to price in some pauses, but not, as Jerome Powell, I think, made clear, they're not necessarily done at this point. Uh, And, I mean, it is a wait and see. They'll now now get it to go through a little bit more of the economy. They've got another six weeks of data before they make the next decision. And, and, you know, again, borrowers are all going to be sitting there on tender hooks waiting to see what it's going to be. But I don't think they know at this point. I think it is going to be data driven. They've gone far enough. That is a bit of a let's see the data specifically. And uh, yeah, the, uh, as I say, the markets are sort of mild on it at this point. And I, again, I just, you, yeah. you know, sort of end on a positive note. And this is a bit of a positive note. The Fed is now, and they said it right out, not even forecasting a recession. They're not forecasting. It used to be maybe a mild recession. At one point, it was maybe even a little worse recession, but they're not forecasting it. But then in big block black letters, as long as they beat inflation. Yeah, you've reminded me. Let me finish with this. Uh, I meant to make this point earlier, and I'm going to continue to make the point. Inflation is the rate of change of prices. I want to not make any mistake and say that doesn't help people who are having trouble with their cost of living. I'll give a quick example. Let's say uh, the cost of food doubled, and then it stayed steady for six months. Well, that short-term inflation rate would be zero. The price increases weren't going up. But we've got people who are suffering with the price increases that have already hit them, They're already struggling, about 50, 60% of Canadians that way are already struggling. So this lower inflation is not going to help them. I mean, they already couldn't afford stuff last April. They can't afford stuff in July and August. So that, as I say, it's going to take a while. They say the rates are going to stay up higher and for longer. They're now looking into 2025 to get back to that 2% rate. In the meantime, let's not forget, on a cost of living basis, not inflation, but the cost of living is becoming more onerous, too onerous for obviously about half the population. Mike, as you know, I can drone on forever, but I think we don't want to forget those people who are having a tough time. And thank you for taking the time with us. Thanks, Mike, and have a great weekend. Time now for the quote of the week. Michael J. Knowles, I knew him from the Daily Caller, but he's the best-selling author of Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. And he warns us that we should be aware that the manipulation of language is a primary tool to manipulate us and control the political or social and or commercial narrative. I mean, come on, I feel like we're living it. I mean, the way to limit discussion is to discredit someone whose opinions you disagree with, not not with counter arguments, I'm saying, or research, but to simply call them a name. Question the climate agenda? Well, presto, you're a denier. Say COVID could have originated from a lab in Wuhan or the Communist Party was feeding us false information. You were literally called a racist in the first quarter of 2020. No need to provide any evidence to support the name calling. The manipulation, though, of language to control the narrative is nothing new. I mean, I'm thinking back to 1871, Lewis Carroll, Through the Looking Glass, the sequel to Alice in Wonderland. And he wrote, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more or less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master? That's all.
And the master today is not the words, but who decides its meanings. And that brings me to the quote of the week by Rob Henderson. He's a popular Substack writer, uh, author, doctoral student focusing on human nature, psychology, and social class. In quotes, after hearing academics refer to center-left professors as conservatives, I'm going to repeat that. After hearing academics refer to center-left professors as conservatives, I've learned that this is basically correct. To people on the hard left, a conservative is someone on the center-left. Anyone who's in the center is right-wing, and anyone on the right is automatically far-right. End of quote. You know, of course, the key, again, is to discredit those with opinions they don't agree with by calling them some sort of extreme with the goal of shutting down debate. But I think he's right on. I mean, I look at that all the time and I see someone being described as, you know, a conservative and I'm going, my God, that's center left. I speak from personal experience. Anyone who supports free speech, for example, or maybe points out the impact of climate policy on poor on the poor in emerging markets, as I've done, is also part of the now far right. No, it's an important point to make. The, uh, the hijacking of the language plays a key part in our social dynamic. I want to bring Ozzy Jurek in right now, who you can find at ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, I got to say, uh, as I was saying off. Hi, it's Rob Levy from Border Gold. There are two ways to purchase gold and silver. One is as an investment, shares in a gold or silver mining company. The other, though, as a hedge or an insurance policy to guard against uncertain times, like we do through our site at bordergold.com. Both are appropriate for your portfolio. But what I want to talk to you about today is physical gold. Hard gold, the real thing, the ultimate insurance policy. Gold bullion coins or gold wafers or bars, silver coins or silver ball bars, there's a lot of solid choices out there. And in most in every case, one is as good as another, particularly when minted or manufactured by recognized sources. Our primary choice for our clients is the Canadian gold or silver maple leaf coins and gold one ounce wafers or large silver and gold bars, all visible on our site. We're market makers and buy and sell based upon the spot price of gold or silver at the time and are the most competitive dealers in the industry. Border Gold's been transacting with our clients, both selling to or buying from for over 50 years. Come to talk to us about why your hedge should be in hard assets like physical precious metals. Come visit us at bordergold.com. At the top of the show, I was kind of smiling thinking we first started to sound the alarm on the excessive immigration without a housing policy. I want to make clear, this has nothing to do with immigration. I'm talking about the fact that the government knew well in advance what their goals were and had no housing plan in place. No plan for, uh, you know, along with the provinces too and along with municipalities, but the other one is healthcare. You know, I already couldn't get a family doctor. I couldn't get in to see a specialist, all of that stuff. Well, it was well in advance and they did not produce a plan. And now we see some of the consequences. I'm saying it's going to get far worse, but it was interesting. I know that you, uh, with all of your subscribers, you'll be talking more about the TD Bank report that came out this week that, uh, by the way, I'd written the editorial before I saw it <laughs> because it's so obvious we've got a big problem coming. Yeah, well, you've been talking about this for, for better part of three years, that, that you anticipated it, and now TD Economics said we had a million two people last year, more than double the pace of 2019 and the years before, and there'll be another million coming, quite possibly even higher than a million 
uh, will be uh, clocked in in 2023. And as you said, it's going to be social systems to healthcare to physical infrastructure. Everything is going to be out of balance because of these number of people coming. And on housing, we're going to be half a million units short of what is needed. It's interesting for me. Uh, there's just so many examples of this. Is you can say, well, some things are a surprise. So maybe, you know, the advent of COVID was a surprise. They had choices about how to deal with it, but COVID was a surprise. This isn't a surprise. It's very much on my par with, you know, when they closed down uh, nuclear plants in Germany without figuring out how they're replacing the power or that we put in intermittent power. You know, and I know I continue to uh, talk about this because I'm still astounded by it, that we didn't figure out that the wind doesn't blow every day or the sun doesn't shine. And here we are now with this. Who couldn't figure out you might need more housing given Canada already had a shortage of rental in major urban areas. We obviously had an affordable housing uh, issue. And now they say, well, you know, who couldn't have figured it out years ago that if you want to increase immigration, good. That's not what I'm talking about. We need immigrants. We have a whatever that birth rate is, 1.4, and we need 2.1, uh, all of that stuff. But for goodness sakes, you didn't think they might need to live somewhere? Yeah. Well, you know, but the thing is that even in the TD Bank, everybody is coming up with ideas. What should we do? Well, we should invest in productivity. But what does that mean? You know, we have to reduce obstacles to professional employment. Yeah, it's all true, but nobody really has a plan of action. I just was yeah. looking at the seven new government officials that that replacing the seven ministers that nobody knew anyways with people that we also don't know. And they're going to come up with the ideas that now changes our economy and our housing plan and so on. But it's been a crazy week. With the interest rates increases, Benjamin Tall from CIBC thinks now the bank has gone overshooting the rate hikes and it will definitely or very likely cause a recession. The interesting point he makes that in the core inflation that our government cites, mortgage interest is in there and it's up about 30% in a yep. year. So that actually <clears throat> needs... Uh, it's it, in the inflation rate, it's showing more inflation than actually it's deflationary. It's a cost added. So so we're living in a, in, a, in a crazy market. The housing market is slowing a little bit. Uh, we have the uh, Financial Consumer Agency in Canada said in June that two thirds of mortgage borrowers are underwater. Wow. Aren't you happy that you can make uh, the predictions of the future? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny on just a, I, I just mentioned briefly uh, with Michael Levy that we have to make a distinction between what my cost of living. That's what I really care about. Uh, you know, I, 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 sure. interest rates may can be a component, but I actually care. Can I make ends meet? Can I get there? And your, your point about mortgages are very important here because uh, they are a big addition to my cost of living and the, and the inflation rate. But it's much if I'm the one who's struggling and I've got that 30% increase because I've got a certain type of variable rate, you know, my goodness, that's the problem there, that these rate increases now have come to that side. They're actually inflationary in this way. It's my cost of living, and I can't afford it, is simply, uh, you know, uh, simply put there. But, I mean, if we come back to that simple formula, though, is that, uh, you know, and recession are going to exacerbate that, as you say, from Benjamin Tall. My God, if we have a slowdown, then those higher mortgage rates become a big problem for individuals. You know, I already couldn't afford stuff. It will certainly reduce wage increases, uh, you know, demands. We're getting them right now, but that'll certainly dampen those. But maybe not enough, as I say, if I've all of a sudden got a big jump in my mortgage, look, that may not be enough. Well, and the key is this, that right now we're seeing, as you pointed out, the variable rates uh, 
that that are coming due all the time. But uh, the head of Desjardins uh, financial organization figures that next year, 2025, we will see a massive amount of fixed rate mortgage increases between yeah. 500 to 1500 a month for, for people. And, and he sees even his own members, 10 to 15% could be under stress. So, you know, if you have a mortgage problem coming up as an individual, start talking to your financial institution. Because if you don't, if you miss a payment, you lose your credit rating, it's tough to get a new mortgage, you know, tell and work with the bank that, that you anticipate problems. Well, uh, you had mentioned this going back a few weeks. There was that uh, Financial Consumer Agency of Canada report, which is mirroring so many other, you know, Ipsos Reid polls and uh, Angus, uh, you know, Ipsos polls rather and Angus Reid polls, et cetera, all saying that we're now well into the majority of mortgage holders are having trouble meeting their financial commitments. Yeah, two-thirds. Two-thirds. Okay, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's why I was saying earlier, Ozzy, people say, why am I focusing on interest rates? I said, we've said this for years in this show. The issue is going to come down to debt, whether it's at the government level or the individual level. We've got a world awash with debt. Now we're starting to pay the price. We've seen this jump in interest rates, well forecast on this show, and I am proud to say that because that's the number one goal I have in the show is helping to protect people from the financial monetary system that we've got set up here. And I think there's a lot more to come. I mean, uh, again, uh, you, you've got so many things. If this starts hitting, I mean, the price of foreclosure, as you just said, the loss of a good credit rating, the fallout's tremendous. Yeah, no question about it. And so, you know, but the, on, the, on, on the bright side, if that's bright, the market seems to be slowing right across the country, including uh, Mr. Toll's uh, observation. I was talking to Brent Roberts in the, in the Fraser Valley and Surrey, which has seen the, the biggest increase in activity. And he says he can really uh, to see a definite slowdown uh, from a couple of months ago. So maybe yeah. we'll all have that well-loved soft landing after all. Well, one one last thing, because I know you wrote it about it, ozbuzz.ca, and that is you, you may, gave some advice. You said, if you are anticipating you may have a problem, I just thought it was excellent advice. Don't wait for the problem. Go talk to your financial institution, the mortgage lender, early on this. Give them a heads up. Start working with them at that point. Yeah, because they might say, okay, will find out what they will do. Will they increase the length of your amortization maybe by 10 years? And will that help you with your mortgage payments? You know, can you buy down the rate? There's all sorts of opportunities, but talk to them before you actually get into trouble. I think that's great advice. And you can get more of the same from Ozzy at ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, go out and enjoy the big weather. I know you'll be out in Vancouver. You're a fireworks kind of guy. Not setting them off, but looking at them. The highlight of the summer for many who live out in Vancouver. And the bigger highlight is doing it, watching them with Ozzy Jerk. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Uh, Mike, it's interesting. I'm seeing all my kids, and I've got five grandkids. And uh, Charles Wadsworth said something that really rang home uh, th this uh, week. He said, by the time a man realizes that his father was right, he has a son who thinks he's wrong. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's a great one. Ozzy Jurek, ozbuzz.ca. I want to go live to the trading desk. 
Uh, Victor Adair joins me right now. You can find him at victoradair.ca. Hey, Vic, I mean, as you told us a week ago, this is Central Bank Week. I mean, I, I still, and I comment on it all the, all the time. I mean, I, maybe it started with Alan Greenspan, but I've never seen it to this degree where everybody waits with bated breath about what the central banks are going to do. And we had a, a triumvirate this week of chiming in on the interest rate and the inflation front. Yeah, well, we all heard the term, don't fight the Fed. Well, it's like don't fight any of the central banks because they are way bigger than you are, you know. Mm-hmm. I, the, the week coming into this week, it, it could have been a lot of fireworks, okay, if, if the central banks would have done something that the market really wasn't expecting. So the central banks were the Fed on Wednesday, and that was kind of a whole hum response in the market. They raised rates by 25 points, as everybody expects. Uh, expected, I should say, their next meeting is in September, and the market's kind of going, well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. They'll raise again in September. The ECB came in on Thursday, the European Central Bank, and they did rock the market. Uh, In the currency markets, the U.S. dollar has been weakening for the past few months for sure, but a big part of that has been the thought that the European Central Bank was going to be more aggressive than the Fed. And, uh, you know, they've been signaling that way until this meeting. They seem to indicate that maybe they're going to take it easy now. I mean, Germany is in recession. Yeah, I think that's the key point, isn't it? The very different situation uh, when they're in the States, they're looking at, you know, improved consumer uh, numbers coming into the end of the week. Uh, You know, another thing. But, yeah, you've got the main economy in recession. Certainly Great Britain isn't going to help them out out of that. France isn't going to help them out. So uh, it's it's. Interesting to see that they're facing very different things, but they don't have, yeah, they've improved in inflation in Europe, but they don't got, they don't have it down to where they, they want it to be. So a, a difficult decision on their part. They keep raising against a weak economy where the States, I think, has a little more latitude to still raise, despite the fact that Jerome Powell kind of said he would if the data, and we'll see what the data is. They are getting weak, you know, better inflation numbers, according to the Fed. So we'll see in September and November. But, uh, yeah, I just saw that real discrepancy between the ECB thinking, man, their chore is a little tougher when their big economy is going down. And, you know, Germany has been softening for some time. And, of course, the biggest market for German export goods is China. And I've been writing a blog for the past few months. You know, a weak China Chinese demand is not good news for Europe and especially not good news for for Germany. So whatever. Uh, But the market, as I say, had been positioned for the European Central Bank to be more aggressive than the Fed. Suddenly, when it looks like maybe they're not, the euro fell sharply following the meeting, like, you know, fell a lot and fell quickly. We did bounce back some on Friday. The Bank of Japan has been the, you know, what did Winston Churchill say, an enigma wrapped in a mystery or something like that? It's like, what's going on over there? Those guys, what are they smoking? I mean, the Inflation rate in Japan was low, low, low. They've kept interest rates low, low, low. But for the past year or so, the inflation rate's really been ticking up, and they've done nothing, you know, compared to what the other central banks have done. So the market was expecting that maybe, you know, finally the new guy would uh, would do something. He did something, but it wasn't all that dramatic. The yen jumped around like a, I don't know, a cat on a hot tin roof. Uh, but here going into Friday, the market's thinking, you know, the yen still looks heavy. So yeah, we had 
the three big central banks, and that was the, the, the possibility of some real explosion this week. But, you know, Mike, it kind of feels like we're just on the, I don't know, summer doldrums or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the markets are just choppy, at, the, at least in the currency side. Well, it's funny. I, I, I saw the Bank of Japan move, obviously, that they've been buying up bonds like crazy in order to keep interest rates down. And maybe they're going to relax that a little bit. I saw their 10-year bond go way up, though. It was very volatile. But the other thing, for the first time, and I'm late on this, but you know, I still look at 20% of the stocks in that Nikkei index are under cash value. You know, Literally, the cash is worth more than the stock is trading for in the market. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of interest in what's going on in Japan after this move. Well, certainly we've had Kevin Muir on the show many Mm -hmm. times, and Kevin's been very bullish on the Japanese market. And the Japanese stock market, you know, despite what you've just said, has been one of the hottest markets in the world here this year. Uh, and, and say also Mexico, you know, who would have thought, but, but, uh, yeah, the, the stock market in the States, we've been talking about so much here the last couple of months, mega cap tech really had been leading the rally and everything else was just kind of laying there. Uh, now, the, la- the last couple of weeks, there seems to be some rotation. Let's say maybe people are saying, wow, I've made so much money owning Apple or Microsoft. They're selling some of that and buying some other stocks. So we're getting a rotation in the markets. But that even there, you know, the market looks a little up one day, down the next, other than the Dow, which I, it seems to be people are saying, you know, it's been up for 14 consecutive days or whatever. That's part of the rotation that I'm talking about. Let, let me ask you quickly about the U.S. dollar. Uh, you know, I mean, there's been this sort of thought that the U.S. dollar's uh, glory days are over, et cetera, and there's been a lot of disagreement over that. But uh, it, it looked at least a little stronger this past week. Yeah, and I think we hit a 15-month low uh, either last week or early this week in the U.S. dollar. And, yeah, there has been – and, by the way, this talk has been out there for – 50 years, you know, yeah. the U.S. dollar was going to come off the being king dollar. I, I've traded currencies for 50 years. I don't know how many times I've heard that. And, yeah, you know, there's some folks out there that would just love to see the U.S. dollar yes. going down. You're not worth the paper it's printed on and all that. But I have to keep repeating, in the currency markets, you're trading one currency against the other. And one of our old expressions was you got to pick the cleanest, dirty shirt. None of yeah. them are great, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and again, that's one of our themes is, is that, you know, which piece of paper do you want? Well, I'll answer none of them. No, this is me talking personally. Give me oil. <laughs> you know, maybe give me gold. Maybe give me silver. You know, those kind of things. Because I, 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 I love your point there because there are, they are all excessively printing up money, you know, in every country in the world. Uh, at some point, that devalues their purchasing power. I, I prefer that look as opposed to inflation. It's when you really get to lack of confidence in the paper currency, we're seeing in about 120 countries, you know, things go crazy. So, you know, I'm in that uh, that camp, but I'm also with you completely. Uh, I, I think the debate about the U.S. dollar is one, you can talk about it. Is it a store of value? Well, clearly there's competition now building up on that. You know, whether there's some people who like Bitcoin, there's some people who like gold, et cetera. But as a trader, you know, as the trading currency throughout the world, I think that's a much bigger task. And I, that's why I'm sort of on this five, six, no, probably more six year time horizon. Even if you are unraveling the dollar as the principal trading mechanism, because they're all going down to garbage and we'll come up with something brand new. Yeah, I, th- I think what inflation really is, is that people realize that the purchasing power of whatever currency they hold 
is going down. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that's what inflation is. And, you know, we come around to, to the, the big riddle in, in the financial markets is really we've seen inflation come down here over the past um, year or, or so. It's still well above the metrics we're talking about, still well above what the central bank targets are. But the riddle is, so, you know, where do we go from here with inflation? Because that's going to sort of dictate what the central banks do. And that's so important to the markets. And, you know, personally, I'm kind of of the view that uh, inflation isn't going back to, you know, between zero and two percent. We're probably entered a new era here where with a lot of money being printed everywhere because that pays for everything that people want. So let's just go into debt. Uh, the, the purchasing power of currencies is going to continue to go down. And so inflation will stay higher than the central banks would like to see it. Yeah. And I think that's the big discussion. I mean, I was thinking today just on that just quickly is that they're not going to control energy prices, you know, and exactly. I still think energy is an up move over time. You know, uh, still shortages, still demand growing. And I still think people in the West don't understand the level of demand you're going to get out of Africa, any other uh, emerging market. I had, the, I had the experience, wonderful experience of living in India and getting a firsthand feel for that size. And it's the biggest country in the world by population now. You know, and I just think it's been underestimated. But the point is, uh, they don't control. That's what core inflation talks about. We're removing energy, removing food, because we know that raising interest rates doesn't impact those things. And so I still think their inflation hopes could be dashed by another kind of price spike in the energy market. I, I really agree. You know, uh, Doomberg, who you've had on your mm-hmm. show, uses the expression, energy is life. And uh, Joseph Schachter's talked about this so many times where the emerging markets of the world, India, China, whatever, any of these other folks, you know, want to live the kind of life we live. And they're going to put a demand on energy consumption. And then there's the whole transition thing. So, yeah, I think energy is probably the thing you would worry about. Uh, rising energy prices, I'd say, in terms of, you know, if you thought inflation was going to go back to zero, you got to give your head a shake when you look at the potential for energy demand. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on that, obviously, because I agree with you completely. And by the way, we'll have Doomberg on the show again in September, oh, uh, you know, with us, uh, many other great guests. But Vic, in the meantime, I want to invite people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Vic, have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. When it comes to high grocery prices, the go-to line for many people, and they consider themselves on the left of the political spectrum, led by NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, is that the main driver of high prices is corporate greed, otherwise known as greedflation. Now, normally one could just pass that off as a regular political pandering and nonsense. But in this case, it carries a great danger because we focus on just one variable, in this case, the wrong variable, it detracts from the real issue and potential progress. By the way, the Competition Bureau released its report into grocery pricing at the end of June. I think it was June 27th. It was entitled, Canada Needs More Grocery Competition. I think that gives you a bit of a hint where they think the big problem is, lack of competition. And by the way, the the report listed four recommendations to government to meaningfully improve competition and help with pricing. And that is one, create a whole of government strategy to support the emergence of new types of grocery businesses, to encourage the growth of independent grocers and the entry of international grocers. Three, introduce accessible and harmonized unit pricing requirements to empower consumer choice. 
In other words, we know what we're buying. Limit the use of property controls that make it difficult for new grocery stores to open. I'm not going to go further there, but the big question is, why isn't there more competition? Why isn't Canada an attractive place to invest and set up a new business? But the goofy goes to those pushing the greedflation story. You know, it doesn't stand up to a moment of scrutiny. If prices are up because of corporate greed, what explanation do we have for price drops? For even discount stores, do the people in charge suddenly become less greedy? Are the people in charge of discount stores less greedy? To say that prices reflect greed is to say that prices vary according to the greed on the part of you know, shareholders or owners of corporations. That means lower prices mean for some inexplicable reason corporations got less greedy. Let's assume for argument, though, that all grocery store, uh, grocery store shareholders are greedy. So it's nonsense to suggest their greed actually fluctuates over time. On a Tuesday, they're less greedy, and on a Saturday, they're more greedy. I mean, come on. It is really that silly, though. There is no reason or evidence to suggest that the greed on the part of share owners would actually fluctuate. But prices do. So they'll continue to fluctuate because of a lot of other factors are at play. You've got increased costs for farmers and manufacturers. Labor costs are rising on every aspect of the supply chain. Including, by the way, employers have increased portions to pay for EI and Canada Pension Plan. You've got transportation costs have gone up over the last two years, especially dramatically. The cost of regulation, we overlook that all the time. I mean, there is the cost of materials. If you're packaging something, you've got environmental freeze, fees, rather, a property taxes, other municipal levies. The point is, this is a far more complex issue about what you price in different stores than the simplistic logic that retreats, retreats to, well, it's ideologically based, to corporate greed which presupposes that the greed of store owners, shareholders fluctuates and produces the changes in prices. As I say, that's silly. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. I want to remind you, though, to go to Money Talks Tweets on Twitter, go to Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, and go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and I invite you to sign up for our free weekly blast. It's called Five Minutes with Mike. Five Minutes with Mike. All I do is throw out a few stats, a couple of quotes, and maybe a lead story for you. It takes, as I say, actually five minutes is overstating it. If you're a slow reader, it's five minutes. It takes about two minutes, but it's easy to join. It's absolutely free. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and just sign on there. In the meantime, I hope you go out and have an absolutely fabulous summer week. 